0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward, and in this episode, I interview poet, essayist, and environmentalist David K. Left about his new book in verse, The Breach, Voices Haunting a New England Milltown. It's a fictional tale told by what are, in most cases, historic objects, and it's literally an object lesson in the history of small-town New England manufacturing. Now be forewarned, in this interview there's a little bit of profanity, some violence, even a bit of sex, but mostly a mill-town tale that's anything but run-of-the-mill, coming up on this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. It's not very often that a historian interviews a poet for a history podcast, but today that's exactly what we're going to do. We're in beautiful Canton, Connecticut, near the banks of the scenic Farmington River, and it's a beautiful day out there. It is, it is one of those days where you really feel like you've made it through winter. We're here to talk with the essayist and poet David K. Leff about his latest creation, a novel in verse called The Breach a creative tour de force that has a wonderful perspective on history woven into nearly every word. That's why uh, I did something I haven't done before and said, I want to do a history podcast about a verse novel. But before we talk about the breach, let me tell you a little bit about the poet himself. This is pretty long in the way of introductions, and let me tell you, it doesn't begin to scratch the surface of the person I'm sitting across from. This is just the overview. David K. Leff is an award-winning essayist, Pushcart Prize-nominated poet, and former deputy commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Environmental Protection. Recently named the Poet Laureate of Canton, And he's also the deputy town historian there, as well as the town meeting moderator, so he knows his town from many different perspectives. In 2016 and 2017, David served as poet-in-residence for the New England National Scenic Trail, the first poet-in-residence at any of the 11 congressionally established trails in the country. To say that David is prolific is an understatement. He's written six nonfiction books, three volumes of poetry, two novels in verse, and uh, a journal I guess he's kept since he was a very young man and still keeps to this day. He's active in many cultural and conservation organizations. He defines both the term engaged citizen and intellectual polymath. He's also a really nice guy with a very talented wife, Mary, who's both a fine art painter and a library creative specialist. Now, one of the things I credit David for is having solved one of the most puzzling conundrums people who live in Connecticut and love this state ever face. And that's answering the question, what is it that makes Connecticut such a uniquely special place to live in? How is it that Connecticut is part of New England and yet different from the other New England states in ways that those of us who live here or who love the place know are true, but we're challenged to put our finger on? Well, David, and I think it was in your 2012 book, Hidden in Plain Sight, answered that question for me persuasively, and I've been using your answer to the question ever since. You wrote, and of course I'm paraphrasing, that Connecticut's uniqueness comes from the fact that we have so many very high-quality cultural institutions deeply connected to and embedded in the environment around them. I, I think that was a brilliant insight, and it, it is something that has transformed the way I think about the state and the way I feel about it. So, good on you.
1: Well, thank you for that very kind introduction. Uh, it seems I, I hardly know that person.
0: You have written this book, that I absolutely love. It's called The Breach. Just give us a little bit of an overview, just kind of a summary of the plot line in a paragraph or so.
1: Well, it's about a small New England manufacturing town located in western Connecticut that's in the metal manufacturing business. And uh, the industry's been there for three generations. And finally, it goes out due to foreign competition and environmental contamination. Uh, The environmental contamination is discovered when one of the employees who is fired for stealing scrap metal squeals uh, that there might be things in the soil. And indeed there are. So the, the plot line is involves small town politics, some of it a little rough, competing redevelopment schemes for the factory, embittered former employees and townspeople who feel they've been left flat, a family that sees itself going from being honored as a pillar of the community, uh, to something much less and further down the socioeconomic scale as, as their business falls apart. There's, um, a suicide in it. There's a little bit of sex and it, uh, evolves in a way that you would expect something like this to, to
0: what a, happen. That is a great synopsis of the book because there is so much that goes on and so much that is revealed. And as you've described it, you've described many different characters, many different perspectives on what's going on in this town. And you have captured in poetry the voices, the attitudes, the feelings of a lot of different people. I, I really felt like There was an omniscient observer of a small town community facing a real existential crisis. And I I admire you for the way you did it. You used a technique that is half of the reason I'm sitting here, because none of the stories you've just told about all the people in this town are told by any of the people in this town. There isn't a person in this book. There are, however, objects. You chose to do something that, uh, you know, my immediate reference was, and you pay homage to him in the book as Edgar Lee Masters, Spoon River Anthology, right? Yes. You use objects to tell human stories. Tell us how you decided to do that.
1: Well, the, the story is told by eavesdropping things that are around us every day. You know, we often say use the phrase, well what if walls could talk? Well, in this case, the walls do talk. And not only the walls, but the Bridgeport milling machine on the shop floor, the clock in the steeple of the church, uh th- an umbrella, a mirror, a pocket watch, you name it if it's around you, they're talking.
0: I just love that concept that you know, all of these presumably inanimate objects that surround us at all times. In your book, they are not inanimate. They're observers, and yes. they tell stories back. And it is just a wonderful way of telling this story. Give us one of the uh, objects that you use. Tell us a story through an object.
1: Sure. Maybe I'll begin with the steeple clock. And um, this introduces Porter Jenkins, who is the owner of the factory his grandfather founded.
0: And this is early on in the book, right? Yes, this
1: this, this is several poems in. Yeah. Steeple Clock. From high in the triangle of this great temple, my face has gazed for generations on Rockwood Falls as hands move minutes to hours, years, and decades. I've seen Porter Jenkins as a bald-headed babe in arms when brought to baptism, and later as a dark-haired young man sure of his place and full of piss, vinegar, and ambition. Now the factory his grandfather founded is failing. At fifty-one, Porter walks heavy-footed and bent, gray and balding beyond years. Grandfather was a congregation corporator, an iron-willed dad, a deacon. As if by predestination... Porter once occupied a front pew every Sunday, singing full throated hymns. Now Christ's name is uttered only for a stub toe or unexpected invoice, God's name still appearing to him daily on coins and paper currency, whose count is increasingly short.
0: You've got so much, so much in one little page. The congregational history of the town, the declining fortunes of this factory owner.
1: Yeah, I, I developed this idea basically from my experiences out in nature. As you know, I'm I'm very spend a lot of time in the outdoors. And I believe that the things around us outdoors have a have a numinous quality. And I don't mean that in a supernatural way, but I do mean it in a spiritual way. But a way that you can read a landscape, read a boulder. And if you know something about geology, in a boulder you can see continental collisions that happened millions of years ago, molten materials, let's say in a pegmatite that runs up the side of the boulder. These things, if you can read them, you know something about them, where they came from, what they mean. Scratches on a ledge that the glacier brought us. Um, You can look at a grove of pine trees on a hill, and you know it's an esker because the pines like well-drained soil. So, translating from that I somehow got the notion that objects do have meaning. They're fraught with meaning. You know, a, 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 table that's, uh, let's say a, or a Windsor chair or something that's, that's handcrafted. I mean, a Windsor chair, you know that the seat is pine generally and, uh, the spindles might be, um, ash and, uh, you know, the legs might be maple. And there's, there is a reason why all those things in an object are the way they are and why they're crafted the way they are. So these objects can speak to us if we know something about them.
0: Well, and they certainly speak in this book. And and going through the pages, one of the fun things is just seeing what the next object is going to be. It It feels a little bit like you're walking through an antique store or a curiosity cabinet because all of these things... They have a historic, most of them have a historic quality to them, and you see both in the object themselves and their story, the life of this town. How did you select the objects you used?
1: It was kind of intuitive, actually. I worked out a storyline although not complete as as you know when you're writing something ideas occur to you as you write it and things happen kind of synergistically uh and serendipitously so um but i i i had a storyline in mind and i tried to think of what objects would best serve parts of the story um you know a mirror or a, or an umbrella that kind of thing you know for example a mirror someone is Looking at, you can see their face. Um, an umbrella moves from place to place because we keep misplacing them. Someone else picks it up and that's in the story. So each object, um, was chosen for the role it could play because of how it's used by human beings.
0: I'm going to do the writer's curse now because I used to get this as a songwriter. You know, which comes first, the words or the music? Well, you're going to get, you're going to get this book's version of that. Which came first, the object or the story the object
1: tells? Um, It depends on the object. Sometimes the story came first, and then sometimes an object just grabbed for my attention, and I had to weave it into the story. So it, it, it worked both ways. One
0: of the stories I love is a story told by the Wishbone Mirror, did did the mirror force the story or did you find you had the story and went looking for the mirror?
1: The, the mirror allowed me to say about the woman looking into it something very specific about how she views herself. She's a quiet person and might not have said a lot of the things that you'd want the story to have. But in the mirror, she's primping, she's looking at herself – She's practicing for a town meeting where she's going to uh, um, demand to know why the water her children is drinking is contaminated. So here it allowed me to have a, a basically quiet person have an introspective moment that was allowed.
0: It was one of the wonderful things in the book. You really get a sense that here's a person who is not used to taking the floor to – to. um to standing up for herself or her ideas, and yet there's a big moment. What better way to tell it than through a mirror? Would you read it to us? I, I'd be delighted.
1: Now, this is um, introduces Rachel Hedstrom, her father worked for the company. Um, she's practicing for a, a town meeting, and hers is among the houses getting company-supplied bottled water at this point. Um, and um, she worries about her two boys.: Their father this died company
0: supplied bottled water because why? Bec-
1: there's been uh, an order issued by the DEP because of contamination. Okay. By by the company, because they it's a it's a company that makes metal boxes, and they used a lot of degreasers um, and other chemicals uh, in their business, cutting oils and the like, and they have found their way into the groundwater. So, Wishbone Mirror. Forever shy, she shocked me with her passion, practicing a speech in my quiet illumination. On occasional evenings when she leaves the boys with her sister, she usually primps silently— freshens mascara and lipstick, brushes that long brown hair sparkling in my echoed light. But tonight she reflects unremitting energy. I demand to know what's in my water and for how long, Rachel shouts at my silvery face. I show back reddened lips and flushed cheeks. Are my kids being poisoned? I have a right to know. The usually quiet grocery clerk seems to look right through me, like I was merely a window forgetting my elegant frame and luminosity, the envy of ordinary glass. Rachel wipes tears and reapplies mascara, sifts for earrings among several clay-coil pots the boys made. What are you hiding? She challenges her own image. Who is responsible? Who will pay? She adjusts her blue rayon blouse, not noticing a shadow spot. My surface is clear and bright, but I can't always reflect what she needs to see. Magnificent.
0: So, did your experience as a town moderator kind of tee this up for you? Here's Rachel getting ready to come to a town meeting and talk. Have you seen Rachel before?
1: I've seen Rachel's before, sometimes at town meetings, sometimes when I worked at DEP. Uh, Like like any piece of writing, a writer brings to it their entire experience— And the bits and pieces that find their way into the work are the ones that are suited to whatever they're writing. And so, you know, a lot of different things went into this.
0: Another of the things I really liked reading this book is that I know you were a a deputy commissioner of DEP, so you have great experience and I would think great passion for the environment. And yet, in the stories you tell... You do present all the perspectives of the people involved in this town crisis over contamination of water supply. And one might expect you to do a environmental proselytizing through the whole thing. And yet, while you tell this story, you're also showing the passion with which people are saying, This is ruining our lives. You show clearly how people faced with a crisis like this can view it from many, many different perspectives.
1: Yeah, I wanted a, I didn't want a polemic. I wanted a real story that would resonate with people, that they would, that they would feel. And, and these are not simple problems. These are complex issues. And it takes many perspectives for one to be able to see it in a holistic way.
0: There's a lesson for our times in that, just in seeing how issues do generate lots of conflict and people can have best of intentions even as they disagree passionately. Another thing I liked because it's a game that I played a lot when I was young and You don't see it that much anymore. It's it's associated with New England. It's cribbage. Hmm. And one of the key revelatory moments in the book is told by the cribbage board. It's a story about a bit of gamesmanship that may have worked or maybe didn't work, isn't it?
1: Yes, it
0: is. What's going on there?
1: Well, um, these are two men sitting in the Raven's Perch pub. And uh, one of them is Ivan North, who's the one who squealed about the company. And now he's, uh, since things turned out really badly, he just thought they'd get a slap on the wrist. Now that the whole town is collapsing, he's deathly afraid that... He's going to be killed or severely dealt with. And he's talking with a local contractor.
0: Now, that's if people find out, right? If people find
1: out, yes. Um, And he's talking to a local contractor named Dexter Brownell, um, who he's confiding in because he's got to get this off his chest. What he doesn't know at this point, but you'll see later in the story, is that Brownell does not treat him very well and uses this information to his advantage. Cribbage board. I hang beside a dimly lit wooden booth in a corner of the Ravens Perch pub, where Ivan North has held forth for over three decades. Blackened by years of cigarette smoke, it's been so long since someone played that the bartender can't find my pegs. Back in the day, Ivan was the king of cribbage, beating all comers at the deal, the play, and the show, getting to 121 before most opponents sipped half a draft. He won rounds of Pabst and Cash until friends faded and no one else would play. I thought I'd be a hero, but the guys will hate me if they find out. I could be killed, no joke, Ivan says, nervously playing with his long beard and then running a finger along generations of tabletop carving. I just wanted to throw a scare into that snobby Jenkins. Shit, I never thought those environmental G-men would shutter the whole works. It ain't a done deal, says muscular contractor Dexter Brownell, lifting a golden pint of PBR in a calloused hand. That family must have cash stashed somewhere. Survived the Depression, didn't they? Besides, they deserve a little scare for what they'd done to you after 31 loyal years slaving as their fucking jack-of-all-trades. Did Jenkins really think Clutch Thornton could be even half as good as you, fixing a running toilet, rewiring a circuit on the quick, or glazing a window in a snowstorm. Promise you won't tell anyone, Dex. I really stepped in it this time. Please promise. You're the only one who knows. Why would I say anything? My lips are sealed. Consider this booth as tight as the confessional in church. Just damn lucky you didn't go shooting your mouth off already. I I was just waiting another week to celebrate a year to the day I was fired. I ain't been no confession since I was a kid, but this is even better. Can I buy you another beer? Dexter Brunel grins, shows off his chipped front teeth. Anytime, buddy, he replies. Anytime. Sad to see my old main man laid so low by that snake, Brownell. But I caught Ivan glancing up at me gathering strength from the days when he was the undisputed virtuoso on my peg-hole street. So much talent wasted as Jenkins' fix guy. The way he used to glib talk after a few beers, he could have made a fortune as a salesman or politician. If he'd only play me one more time, I'd start him on the road back. I just
0: love how the characters develop through the stories told by these objects. It's it's wonderful. Thank you. You talked at the beginning about an umbrella as an object that has this unique perspective because people do lose umbrellas so they they get around. Yes. And you have an umbrella in uh The Breach that gets around quite a bit and has quite a story to tell, doesn't it?
1: He does. And uh, um, this is an umbrella that was bought in England by um, a high-ranking person there uh, who came to visit the local banker, uh, Ralph Cogswell, and he left his umbrella. And uh, here we also um, are revealed that Cogswell is having an extramarital affair with Ellen Bostwick, one of the tellers in his bank, who is also the sister of Rachel Headstrong. Mm. Gents Walking Umbrella Some call me promiscuous because I'll open to anyone for pedestrian shelter in a cloudburst. Compact as a perched raptor, I suddenly burst forth like a bird taking flight, protecting whoever is in need. I could care less for what the negative nabobs of loose talk say, handcrafted in London by James Ince and Son Limited, makers of fine portable shelters since 1805. I've a black metal frame, gunmetal trim, a chestnut handle, and black fabric canopy. Fated to be misplaced, my kind are engaged in a nomadic existence of serial ownership. Starting with an English lord who called upon handlebar mustachioed Mr. Cogswell, I was forgotten at the Savings Society, witnessing many mortgages and commercial loans. Teller Ellen Bostwick borrowed me on a rainy afternoon, and I spent a month in her bedroom where I blushed at occasional visits from Lord Easterbrick's banker friend who seemed to delight in the lady's long legs and squealed quite expressively in ecstasy. On a stormy night, Mr. Cogswell borrowed me back, only to leave me a fortnight later in the barbershop, where I waited out many a sunny day in a corner, listening to rather bold, hirsute characters hold forth nastily on the factory's closing. Now I'm stranded behind the counter at the Night Owl Diner, patiently biding my time, my delicate fabric absorbing the greasy aroma of bacon and fried potatoes, while listening to a surfeit of the most loudish talk. It's not easy awaiting a foul-weather friend. (laughs) An umbrella with
0: attitude and oh, the things it's seen. (laughs) Yes. I'm mesmerized by the perspective of objects as these things unfold. Thank you. It's this combination of object-driven observation with engaging and complex human interactions that makes this book incredibly special. Plus, in many ways, it seems to be the story of New England factory villages writ large, right? This is yes. this is a fictional town, but the story you're telling has happened over and over and over again in towns throughout New England one of which is of course the town in which we are sitting right now canton whose neighborhood or subtown collinsville was home to the collinsville axe factory and you live on the green in collinsville right near the steeple church with the clock i i used to live in collinsville and i as i'm reading this book i'm i'm you know i'm seeing this is This is David's inspiration for a lot of this. Am I right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, my hometown is my inspiration for much of my work. And uh, yeah, and there's some elements that you would recognize as Collinsville, but this town is a little bigger, smaller than Torrington, bigger than Collinsville. Um, There are some direct references such as um, uh, some quotes from a 1946 uh, Fortune magazine article about the Collins Company that uh, I attribute to this company, um, the um, Jenkins Sheet Metal fabrication company. Uh, And uh, I reference photographs by Walker Evans, who took pictures here in Collinsville. Um, But it's also, it's wider than that. It's based on my traveling throughout New England and seeing towns like this for example the the idea of making sheet metal boxes uh, that would be over in Durham uh Durham Manufacturing Company and it had a sister company there uh, that also made uh sheet metal boxes so i've drawn on a lot of sources but truly the real inspiration is from my my surroundings, the very air that I breathe, the people that I talked to over the years uh, who worked in the factory or had family who worked in the factory.
0: As someone who has spent some time here, I feel like I know the bars. I know I know the town hall. I know the church. And it, it just adds a, an even richer dimension to the story. There's a shocking moment that really brings the seriousness of what's going on in this town to bear that's told by the only object that could tell this story in a way. Let me not say any more.
1: This this um, poem uh, entitled Remington 870 Pump Action Shotgun um, is about Clutch Thornton. Uh, when Ivan North was fired... This young man was hired to take his place. And to him, it was the dream job of a lifetime. Factory closes and he's working at Dunkin' Donuts um, at the drive-up window serving coffee. And um, what really I tried to express in this is despite the fact that it has a very ugly end, it's a suicide, um, it's a very sweet description of this young man by the object that kills him. So, Remington 870 Pump Action Shotgun. Clutch made me do it. We were best of friends, companions in the woods, whatever the weather. I know I felt good in his hands, and his hands felt good on me. Paid to be an ass-kisser for anyone with a couple bucks thirsting for coffee at the drive-up, he felt invisible worried his skills might atrophy like unused muscles. Sweet and shy, he was no good at pounding the pavement for work, didn't make the best impression with that wild yellow hair and soft, tentative, tongue-tied way of speaking. He seemed more cheerful in the days before feeding me a shell of number four shot, his finger on my trigger like old times, He gently kissed my muzzle and pulled to a spray of red and gray spatter.
0: That hits with a real impact. That's, uh, in a crisis like this, in a place like this, there are people who just find they can't cope with it. That's right.
1: I mean, he's one of many in the story who are affected, but he meets with the worst result.
0: What, what? again the the power in this comes through the attachment between the rifle and clutch mm-hmm. and and there's a there's a juxtaposition between the sort of emotional bond between the two and what the you know and the rifle doing its job
1: yeah i mean you know we we have a bond with the objects around us some of them are deeply personal they might have been passed on from you know uh, uh ancestor or your father, or they might be things that are a memento of uh, some event, you know, a wedding, a special vacation. And it doesn't have to be something expensive. It could be a rock you picked up on the beach. But objects have meaning for us, more so than we commonly realize um, until they're gone or misplaced.
0: And I think one of the things that this book invites us to do is to look around at the objects that have meaning for us spend a little time reflecting on what you know if that wall could talk if that object could talk if that frame could speak
1: yes they're ex- they're extensions of who we are yeah, what they're, would they're, they there's something beyond us that is still us
0: you even have a briefcase i do in the story that's you know the most utilitarian of all objects in some ways in this case, um, it seems to be carrying either a message – it's a harbinger of something, right?
1: Yes, yes. In, in this case, this is um, a briefcase that belongs to Del Follert, the first selectman, and um, it's in his office, and our banker friend, Mr. Cogswell, comes to pitch an idea for revitalizing the factory, and the briefcase is there, and it's listening. Dark brown bellows briefcase. I'm telling you, Dell. Ralph Cogswell says with conspiratorial urgency. The upside of this is very big. We keep the freaking factory to satisfy nostalgia nuts and the hysterical society, but we're taking our biggest underperforming tax asset and creating a powerhouse. A constant companion, nicked, scratched, and stained, my lock broken. I've carried Delbert Follert's stuff since high school. Textbook and book reports, Sports Illustrated and Playboy. Now it's meeting minutes, school board documents, balance sheets, and a yellow legal pad for notes and his trademark elaborate doodling. Sure, we've got to go along to zoning, the wetlands commission, and the state hazmat, but I know you've got the pull to make this happen. I'm close on the dollars. Just a few more deep pockets, hungry to park some cash, and we're good. I've got most of the bank directors on board. It'll work. Mixed use is the way to go. I've got good feedback from potential anchor tenants who need anonymity. anonymity, uh, And Blockbuster and Orvis are registering high positivity. I'm talking upscale apartments, a plaza along the river. Keep it under your hat while I jaw with Jenkins over the property. Always at Dell's feet behind the desk like a sleeping dog. I can tell he's hot on the pitch by the way he nervously taps his left foot. He'll feed me the stack of market studies, drawings, and sample contracts, and read himself to sleep. Where he dreams, he's the state's longest-serving first selectman. I,
0: I, I love that one of the key anchor tenants, or one of the tenants of this mixed-use factory redevelopment, is going to be a blockbuster. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, th- this takes place in the 1990s, yeah, so yeah. it's a little different world. But it's the future and the past. Yes, and a,
0: you know, a failed future and a renewed past, all wrapped up in one. I guess that's what that's what poets do. But it, <laughs> it, Me-
1: metaphor can work magic. Yeah, it's really <laughs> wonderful.
0: And of course, having lived in Collinsville and you know, seen the, the, I mean, this is. That's a story ripped from the pages of life here in <laughs> here in Canton, I think. Um there's a there's a wonderful antique cash register, right? Yes, and at the hardware store. Yep. Yeah, been around for a long time, knows a lot. What does it do?
1: Uh well, the the um the cash register over here's people talking in line uh, while uh, they're they're waiting to uh uh, By their nails or uh hinges or hammers or whatever they're purchasing, and uh he gets a a pretty good idea of the pulse of the community um and uh everyone's surprised when one of the people online this time, someone who worked in the factory, ran a Bridgeport milling machine among other machines uh His name is Tommy Meescheck um he speaks favorably about this idea of turning the factory, into an art center. This is Rachel Hedstrom's idea. Uh, Rachel well, was the it,
0: woman who was practicing in the mirror, yes, right? Yes,
1: and, and is concerned about the contamination of her children. Um, but her father worked for the company, and she wants to – she feels that the company was a very creative aspect of the town, manufacturing things to custom order that – were you know designed by these men who really thought with their hands, um, and uh, so she wants to do something to as a tribute to them. And this is her idea: is to have this um, creative art center um, in the factory.
0: And you decide to have people talking about this creative arts center where? At the hardware. At the store. hardware store. Yeah, there yes, you go. Yes.
1: So National Cash Register Brass Model Ninety One. I got a crank, so don't mind if I'm cranky. I've been here longer than anyone remembers, and I still work every working day. Forget all the fancy floral brass and filigree. I'm all business. Never missed a moment at the job. You hear the ring, 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 ka-ching, ka-ching, But for me, the checkout line at Rockwall Rockwood Falls Hardware is a Greek chorus of gossip for guys that labor with their hands and weekend fix-up types griping, moaning, filling time with off-color jokes and laughs. Did you hear about the artsy-fartsy stuff proposed for the factory, says Jeb Nilsen, waiting with a pound of ten-penny nails. Ain't no high-paying jobs like running a machine or even inspecting product says Ed Mickle, 30 years a paint booth, man. Just arts and craps no one needs, adds Charlie Wilcox, as he punches my keys and makes change from the drawer. Will it pay taxes like Jenkins? What you think about that Headstrom woman's fancy notions, he asks third in line, Tommy Mieschak. Beats all those high-floating, yuppie-hole condos I hear about. My woodworking shop is going great guns, Tommy says, leaning back. Saw blade under his arms, thumb in his belt loops. Call me artsy all you want, but I could use some space down there.
0: So there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and it has to do with creative arts. It does.
1: It does. But it's not a done deal. It gets a little tricky at the
0: end. It does get tricky at the end. So there is, near the end of the book, a pair of L.L. Bean, thank goodness a New Englander Gives us a pair of L.L. Bean hunting shoes, right? Yes. And what's the story they tell us?
1: Okay, well, this is when Del Follert, the first selectman, meets with Cogswell in the banker's office. And um, now he's trying to convince uh, the first selectman that the arts idea is a good one. And the reason is, is because his mistress, um, Ellen Bostwick, the teller, is going to squeal on him if he doesn't go for that because it's his her sister who wants the arts factory to happen.
0: so interesting that it the the fulcrum of this whole thing hinges on <laughs> a guy being blackmailed by his girlfriend, right <laughs>
1: Well, a big part of it does <laughs> yes <laughs> let that let that be a lesson yeah uh l.L. bean 10 inch main hunting shoes. Those condo boys are pissed. They thought you were their man, Ralph Cogswell says to Del Follert with a whistle. You shoot him off with checkbooks open. No wonder Nelson Holloway has come out for demolition in townhouses and suddenly has the dough for newspaper ads and lawn signs. He could beat you at the ballot box. You don't know a man until you walk in his footsteps. So who else to better understand the banker than us? So worn we stand in a dark office corner, Retired from hunting and fishing, only out for a ramble when his wingtips can't hack the weather. Follert would do well to listen as they sip a smoky single malt from the desk drawer. Our guide bankrolls his every election. We need to shift gears a bit, Dell. I say we go with that Headstrom woman's art beehive or whatever it's called. Follert slams his glass on the desk. Beehive BS. After all the work on the mixed-use plan, where's the tax revenue in it? This is a working man's town. They'll laugh me out of office. It's all because that Bostwick babe's got your balls in her pocket. Keep Ellen out of it. I guarantee the artsy stuff will play better than those high-end retailers only for out-of-towners. Maybe you're not hearing the blowback over those yuppie apartments with river views. Play ball, and you won't have to worry about campaign contributions. Trust me on this. We're going to make it sound like it was your idea. I got a plan. I just
0: loved reading this story and I felt. Thank you. I felt that I was getting more than I could get from assuming this was a real story and real people. I felt like I really was getting more than I would get even from masterful historical narrative. Thank you. And it led me to, it led me, the, the question I wanted to ask you when I got done, because I know you, are a historian, an environmentalist, a poet, an author. What do you think a story like this can tell people that history can't?
1: Well, I think it can reach them because it has an emotional impact. You know, it hits you in the solar plexus. And all the objects here uh, are described with great amount of precision based on research. Uh, the history that is told is a very realistic and common history here in New England. So it's factual based, but it has an emotional impact that maybe some historical narratives uh, would lack. And that's not to say that they are not valuable they can fill in with a lot of detail and a lot of information that you can't in this format every every different kinds of format literary format has its virtues has its limitations and uh has its advantages and this one um i thought would reach people on an emotional level but also give them very vivid visual images of the things and the people in the town the the things are described um uh, in by those objects themselves uh just like their li- little mini autobiographies and the people are described in a way that the objects react to them just like people react to people you know they're irritated they're in love uh they're uh, feel askance uh, there's so many different ways that you know just as we react to certain people, these objects react to the people around them and you know are able to tell the story and it's not just um uh, there's a lot of antique objects like the cash register and that kind of thing. But there's a lot of modern day objects. There's a microphone. There's a cobra head streetlight that, you know, uh, listens in. You know, it's only between me, you, and the lamppost. Well, yeah. it really is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. It, this is a wonderful story. It, it, people in my profession, you know, the the academic historians, there's been a lot of talk for a long time about the relationship between history and fiction. And there are many historians who have tried to fill in the gaps in what they know with, uh, with you know, imagined narrative, where they don't really have the facts, but they feel they know their characters well enough that they can. Yes. So it's been a debate in history of what this relationship is. And I have to tell you, this book, The Breach, has just completely reshuffled the deck on that question for me. I don't I don't I don't know where I'm going to come out on it, but I have seen the power of fiction to tell a history maybe better than I could imagine the history could do it, and I think that is an amazing accomplishment. We haven't talked about the title. Oh, okay. The the <laughs> breach. This is a book with breach after breach after breach in it, isn't it?
1: Yes, yes. It's Just like life, it's nuanced, it's layered. Um, there are many breaches in this book, and just a few of them are it's between a town and its principal industry, the politicians and the citizens, between the people and the natural world among individuals and families, you know, uh, I invite readers to count them all. There are many breaches, many, many instances where expectations were upset, where relationships uh, were torn asunder. And those are the kinds of breaches that we experience every day.
0: And, and captured magnificently in this book. The Breach, Voices Haunting a New England Milltown. It's by David K. Leff. It's published by Homebound Publications. Where can people find this?
1: Um, they can get it from Homebound Publications. They can stop in and see me. They can get it on Amazon. Now, that's
0: worth a trip. So.
1: <laughs> and they can order it through any bookstore.
0: Excellent, excellent. If well, it's, it's not worth already it. there. I'll tell you, you can read this book in an evening, and then you can reread it every month for a year, and still find new and great things in it. David, thanks so much.
1: Thank you. I'm just happy to be here. Bye-bye. Thanks
0: for listening. We wish to thank David K. Leff and the Canton Public Library. To learn more about David Leff's publications, or to book him for a book talk, visit his blog at davidkleff.org. Dot .typepad.com. You can order The Breach: Voices Haunting a New England Milltown at homeboundpublications.com or wherever books are sold. And for more great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history at ctexplored.org. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.